this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please open up to Matthew chapter 21. It will be on the screens as well for you to follow along. And I'll give you just a moment to find that in your Bibles. Matthew 21 and reading from verse 23. And when he entered the temple, that's Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism from John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they, will hold, they, hold, they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did, did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. 
As we prepare our hearts further to hear from Tony as he'll come and preach this passage to us, we're going to sing another song, Behold Our God. So let's stand and let's sing together. Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name's Tony. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be looking at that passage and opening that up that was read to us just a little while ago. If you'd like to have that open in front of you, uh, that would be a help to you, I think, as we go through it uh, together this morning. Look to hear and have God speak to us by his word, brought home to us by his spirit. Why don't we pray as we, um, as we come to his word together? Father, um, yeah, we just come and we recognise that we are looking at um, documents, text that's thousands of years old and written to a particular situation, to a particular context. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grasp what's being said and why it's being said and the implications both then and particularly now for our lives as we, as we spend this uh, time together this morning. Father, please, by your spirit, be our teacher. Help us to see Jesus more clearly, uh, having opened your word this morning together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember uh, early 1995 driving uh, to Halls Creek in the Kimberleys of Western Australia to spend two years uh, working up there uh, for the Halls Creek People's Church. Um, we were in between uh, Fitzroy Crossing. I was I'm just trying to wait. Was it between Derby and Fitzroy, between Fitzroy and Halls Creek? doesn't really matter. Uh, we experienced for our first time a Kimberley storm. And if you've experienced a Kimberley storm, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we saw it up ahead, looming in the distance, getting bigger and bigger and darker and darker, and yet we continued to drive straight on with some other people past us who seemed to be locals and they didn't seem to be stopping, um, so they kept, uh, we kept going just as they did. Our destination was predetermined, that being Halls Creek, and so we continued undeterred. Now, needless to say, it nearly swept us off the road uh, when we finally kind of got into the midst of it. Um, but we, you know, we survived to tell the story, as you can see. Um, as we come to our passage today and we find ourselves at the part we are in Matthew's Gospel, it's fair to say that a storm is brewing in Jerusalem. A storm is brewing in Jerusalem between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. It's already begun and it's only going to get more intense and more dark and more threatening as the next little while unfolds as we work our way through Matthew's gospel. The interesting thing is that Jesus is fully aware of it though. He's not surprised by it. In fact, he's been predicting it. He's been telling his disciples that this was going to happen and he's heading straight into it because his purpose and his plan is predetermined and he is heading straight into this storm to do what he has come to do. We pick it up where, we, uh, where it was read for us earlier in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23 through 46. Uh, Jesus has already caused quite a stir uh, in the earlier part of this chapter, which we're leaving for Palm Sunday. We're going to come back to that just a week out from Easter and have a look at chapter 21 and the first half. 
But he's already caused quite a stir and the leaders, the religious leaders, are clearly not happy about it at all, not happy with him. He has come into the temple uh, as he's entered Jerusalem, the very heart of Israel's spiritual life and the seat of the religious leader's power and authority and a kind of status in the community of Israel. Jesus has walked into that and he has upended the chairs and the tables of those conducting business there and he has driven them out. How dare you do that? Who dares do that? The problem for Jesus is that they were using the outer court of the temple, known as the court of the Gentiles or the non-Jews, for their lucrative business. And this court was for the Gentiles. It was the place for non-Jews to come and approach Israel's God and to pray. But they've cluttered it up with tables and selling uh, doves and so on for the sacrificial system, and therefore they have excluded the Gentiles, going against the very heart of God towards the world, and it has become, as Jesus says, not a house of prayer, but a den of robbers. Uh, not only has Jesus kind of purged the temple in this way, as the Lord of the temple, he was also healing people, pointing to the reality of the future kingdom of God that is present among them in and through the person of Jesus. And he was teaching and proclaiming the truths of the kingdom of God in the temple. So there's lots for the religious leaders to be upset about. And so you have this rising tension between Jesus and them. Jesus, the Christ, has come to his temple, the heart of his people's lives, looking for spiritual fruit, looking for wholehearted devotion to God. To no avail, he finds nothing. And so as the fig tree incident uh, kind of makes clear, he finds no fruit and he brings judgment on them. Uh, the religious leaders, on the other hand, well, they don't acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, but rather as someone who is a threat to their position, to their power, someone who must be stopped. And so we pick up the story in verse 23. And when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? The religious leaders come asking for his credentials. By what authority are you doing these things? It's actually not a genuine question. It's actually another trap that they're setting. If they can get him to say he's doing it by heaven, then they can charge him with blasphemy and then they can proceed to arrest him and whatever else they want to do to get rid of him. But Jesus, as often is the case, his response is masterful, isn't it? Let me ask you a question, he says. He asks them about the baptism of John. That the whole region we read earlier in Matthew's Gospel went out to and experienced. Large crowds, well known across Jerusalem. Was it from heaven 
or from man. In other words, was it part of God's purposes and plans unfolding? Or was it just something that men came up with? Now, if they deny, so if they say Johnism was from heaven, they have to acknowledge his ministry. And what was John's ministry? Well, his John's ministry was a ministry of preparation, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, get ready for the Christ. Get ready for God to come. So if they say it's from heaven, then they have to acknowledge Jesus. They don't want to do that. If they deny John's baptism was from heaven, well, then they're going to upset the people because they think he's a genuine prophet. So they're in this kind of quandary. Again, Jesus' response is masterful, isn't it? So they take the political approach and they decide not to answer the question. If they say John's baptism was from heaven, sorry, they actually decide to flat out lie and play dumb. We don't know, they say. We don't know. So Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. Now, on the back of this interaction, Jesus then proceeds to tell them two parables. A parable about two sons and a parable about an owner of a vineyard and his tenants. Both parables, you'll note, are aimed at God's Old Testament people Israel and particularly their leaders, and both parables show God's kingdom purpose advancing and progressing no matter what. Have a look at the first one with me in verse 26 through 32. He says to them, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Jesus says to them, Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, obvious question, right? Obvious answer. Uh, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Here Jesus speaks of two sons with two different responses to their father's will. One refuses the father's command to work in the vineyard, but later changes his mind. The other initially says he's going to go, but then doesn't go. And Jesus asks the obvious question, which one, which of the two did the father's will? And the answer is obvious, but then comes the sting in the tail, which is often how parables work. Verse 31, Jesus says, prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Those who are considered outsiders, those who were considered defiled and corrupt and unworthy, well, they're the ones that are coming into the kingdom of heaven. While those who were considered, who would have considered themselves insiders, the outwardly righteous, they're not. And notice that Jesus makes it clear why this is the case. Verse 32, 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. That is, John the Baptist came and proclaimed a baptism of repentance, proclaimed the coming day of the Messiah is close, is near, and the religious leaders didn't believe him, didn't respond to the word of God being spoken through him about the Son of God who is about to come. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, well, many of them heard the ministry and the message of John and they believed him. They, they were excited about a rescuer coming, a Messiah coming, and so they believed and responded and then received him. Matthew makes it clear that believing John is therefore believing in Jesus. And that is the key. The tax collectors and prostitutes did that. They are the son who initially said no and then changed their mind. The religious leaders did not believe John and so they do not believe in Jesus. They are the son who initially said yes, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, with, yeah, we're with God's word. But then they didn't they actually say no. Friends, can you see here that believing in God's rescue in Jesus is the key to entry into the kingdom of God. Believing in God's rescue in Jesus prophesied throughout the scriptures, promised and announced in the ministry of John the Baptist is the key to entry into and a place in the kingdom of God. In verse 33, we see Jesus telling another parable, which is kind of like a history of Israel's leaders. It's, it's pretty confronting. It shows again and again they have rejected the prophets and ultimately how they reject God's own son, who he sends to them and for them. The point that Jesus is making here is the way that they are responding to him now is not new. Israel's corrupt and power-hungry leaders have often rejected God's spokesmen, God's prophets. And the way they are responding to him at this point is just more of the same. It's a parable about a vineyard, a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and got it all ready for it to be a fruitful vineyard. And then he leased it to some tenants. He put people in charge of it and he went to another country and when the time for fruit came the owner expected to receive that so he sent servants and they beat one and killed another and stoned another and then he sent other servants and more than the first and they did the same to them but finally he sent his son think saying oh, they'll respect my son if i send my son He's the son of the owner. He's the heir of this vineyard. Surely they'll respect him. But they see him coming and decide to kill him and to keep things for themselves, to keep their place of power. Now, the background to this parable comes from Isaiah 5. It's, it's almost word for word in some way. 
This is God speaking about his people Israel, describing them as his beloved and his vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines and he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, fruit, the fruit of transformed lives, living in relationship with Almighty God. But it yielded wild grapes. Literally, in the original, it's something like it yielded stinky, rotten fruit. Isaiah goes on to say that as a result, God will remove his protection around this vineyard. He will allow it to be overrun. He will bring judgment on it. So here in Matthew, we have the vineyard again that belongs to and is owned by God. He has his tenants who are meant to bring the harvest of fruit with joy, but instead they are hostile to those the owner sends, that being the prophets, and are ultimately hostile to his son whom they kill. So Jesus asks the obvious question in verse 40. Seems to be asking a lot of questions today, doesn't he? When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the religious leaders themselves announce a picture of the judgment they'll experience. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons they actually pronounce the judgment that they will actually receive the owner will bring just and righteous judgment upon them and he will give that vineyard to others while the Jewish religious leaders exclude themselves from it through their unbelief and in their hostility but did you notice verse 42 Verse 42, Jesus says, Have you not read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. In our eyes. You see, what's astonishing here, friends, is this. That which from a human perspective looks like an epic fail turns out to be God's finest and most glorious moment. That which from a human perspective looks like an epic fail turns out to be God's finest moment. The stone, meaning Jesus, has been rejected by those who should receive him. In fact, he's been rejected to the the point of immense suffering and death by crucifixion, which is precisely what Jesus has been saying, isn't it? Just in the previous chapter. 
Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that is to the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus will be rejected to the point of immense suffering and death by crucifixion. But this turns out to be the very foundation of what God is doing to save us. The stone has become the cornerstone, it says. The one that was rejected has now become the cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone is the foundation stone of every building in Jesus' day. It's the first stone that is laid down and put down. It's the stone that is laid and to which all additional stones of the building are aligned with and linked up to. Matthew says, that this is what God is doing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he doesn't just say that. He shows us how to respond. He says, and it is marvellous in our eyes. It is marvellous in our eyes. So that's essentially the narrative of what Matthew has recorded here for us. But the question, of course, is how do we apply this? How does it land for us in our lives? I mean, it's pretty much directed at the chief priests and the elders, is it not? So how does it apply to us? Well, there's lots of things we could say, but I want to mention three this morning as we seek to see how this lands for us. The first is this. What we see here is the danger of pride and unbelief before Jesus. Just as the parable of the tenants has a kind of sense of shock about it, that's exactly what we see here in these chief priests and elders, isn't it? They're the custodians, if you like, of God's Old Testament revelation, the law and the prophets. They knew the scriptures. That's why Jesus says, have you not read in the scriptures? They knew the scriptures. And not only that, but they've seen the ministry of John the Baptist and they've heard his message. They've heard him calling Israel to repent and to prepare for the coming Messiah. And they've seen many receive both John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. And they've seen the transformed lives that come about as a result of that. And yet, they reject him. They want to trap him. They want to get rid of him as quickly as possible and they will be instrumental in doing so in having him crucified. And friends, it is their pride and their unbelief that is driving this response. They will not receive him. They will not acknowledge him. They will not submit to him in their pride and their unbelief. They flat out Reject him. What I want to suggest to you here is that when it comes to us being right with God, 
through the means he has provided, that being Jesus. Pride and unbelief are our greatest threats. Pride and unbelief are our greatest threats. Our pride, if we're not careful, will blind us to our need of Jesus. If we think, oh, we're not too bad, you know, like God will probably accept us and we're certainly, at least we're better than, you know, those other people. We're more morally upright than them. Our pride is in place and if that's what we're thinking, then why would we need someone to die on a cross for our sins if we're pretty okay already? We won't see the wonder of it. It won't be marvellous in our eyes because our pride will blind us to our need of Jesus and our unbelief will keep us from God's provision for us in Jesus. See, how do you take hold of what God has done for you in Jesus on the cross? You take hold of it by simply putting your hope and trust in it. By reaching out and taking hold of it by faith. But if you're full of unbelief, you won't do that. And though the provision of God is there, you will not take hold of it. Pride and unbelief before God when it comes to Jesus actually has the potential to keep us separated from from God forever and for eternity. So The first thing we see here is the danger of pride and unbelief before Jesus. Those who you would have thought would have received him and welcomed him as Messiah reject him and want rid of him. The second thing we see in this passage is the beauty of humble faith. In Jesus. The beauty of humble faith in Jesus. Verse 31 and 32, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Note the difference here in their response to Jesus and his kingdom. There's no pride, but only humility, well aware of their need, well aware that left to themselves they're outsiders. Where where there was unbelief, there is faith in Jesus. There's coming and putting their trust in what John has said. About him. Now it's important to say that that wasn't always the case, right? They, they weren't always in this place of humility and faith when it came to Jesus, but as they saw Jesus more clearly, as they received the ministry of John the Baptist and uh, hope began to kind of ignite within them, they moved from unbelief to belief, from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, and maybe that's exactly what's happened for you as well. Or maybe you're in the middle of it happening in your life at this point in time. Here we have the the last people we might think would be part of the kingdom of God, the most unlikely candidates from a human perspective, but they're included in it. And this is the beauty 
of humble faith in Jesus. And these tax collectors and these prostitutes, they are a picture for us all of what it looks like to receive Jesus and to enter his kingdom. They know they are outsiders because of their sin. They know their sin has separated them from God. They are in no doubt about that. They know they have nothing of worth to bring, to kind of present to God as some kind of, I don't know, bargaining chip. But they also know that Jesus is the king who saves and he is the king who can save them. And so they come with humility and faith and Jesus doesn't let them down. Just as he will not let you or I down when we come to him in the same way. Knowing that our sin has separated us from God and we cannot fix ourselves, knowing that we have nothing to offer, but knowing that Jesus is the king who saves and that we can trust him. That's the second thing, the beauty of humble faith in Jesus. The third thing we see here in this passage is the wonder of God's saving purpose. As we've already said, from one angle, it looks like an epic fail. But as Jesus has already made clear, what is going to happen to him and what is happening to him is the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes. The storm is brewing up ahead and he's going to walk straight into it. But he views it not as an epic fail, but as the fulfilment of God's perfect plan. Have you ever read? He says to them. What's happening is consistent with God's revelation in the Old Testament. Psalm 118 is what's being quoted, written hundreds and thousands of years before. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundation stone, stone that all other stones will be linked to in this new building that God is making. Peter puts it this way. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, that's Jesus, resurrected, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves... Look at this, like living stones, when you come to Jesus, he raises you and you come alive, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, notice this, Behold, God says, I am laying a stone in Zion. This is the Lord's doing. God has done this, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Standing before Almighty God one day, no shame, no shame, no matter what you've done, where you've been. Whoever believes in him, whoever puts their hope and trust in him, 
will not be let down ever and will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Friends, do you see the, res- the rejection and suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus is ultimately God's doing. Though Jesus is violently rejected by those who should have joyfully received him, God is sovereignly at work in this, achieving his redemption for all who will come to him. And again, as the psalm says, this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvellous in our eyes. Let me ask you this morning, when was the last time you did a bit of marvelling? Not a word we use that often, is it? Except for movies, Marvel movies, but you know, they're not that marvellous, some of them. Some of them are okay. This is worth marvelling about. To, to marvel is to be filled with wonder and astonishment at the same time. I wouldn't mind doing a bit more marvelling, would you? It sounds good. And God has given us every reason in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, and what he's done to do so. In fact, he calls us to this, to marvel. To see in the death of Jesus, simultaneously, the most heinous act in all of human history when hostile and sinful human beings rejected and crucified the one who made them. But to see at the same time the most astonishing act in all of human history when he laid down his life on the cross to redeem all who will come to him in humble faith. This was the Lord's doing. This was God coming to rescue us, working out his saving purposes in Jesus, and it's marvellous. So there you have it, three key takeaways from this passage this morning. The danger of pride and unbelief the greatest threat to us being right with God, to having right relationship with him. It'll cause us to fail to see our need of Jesus. Romans 3.21 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God comes through the Lord Jesus. The beauty of humility And faith in Jesus, the beauty of coming to Jesus, knowing we have nothing. We can't earn it, and we don't have to. He has done it. And so we can come and place our whole trust in Jesus to save us, knowing that he is the king who saves And then lastly, the wonder of God's saving purpose. Time to marvel, friends, at the Lord's doing. 
what he's done for you and for me. That Jesus, the Christ, would be rejected and suffer to save us. That that would be God's gracious plan. As the team comes back up uh, to lead us, we're going to have the opportunity to respond, to come in humility and with faith, to repent of our pride and unbelief if that's where we are, if that's snuck in, and to wonder or marvel at what God has done through the Lord Jesus for us. Can I invite you as we sing and then as we share the Lord's Supper together and see through these emblems of bread and juice again what God has done. Can I invite you to marvel? Maybe you never have. What a great time to start. Maybe you have in the past but it's kind of dropped away. What a great time to restart. To be filled with wonder and astonishment at the same time. Let's sing.